It is declared that Mr. Jacob Gevechegisazuma is guilty of the crime of contempt of court for failure to comply with the order made by this court in Secretary of the... South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, has been sentenced to 15 months in prison. The country waits to see if Jacob Zuma will hand himself over to police tomorrow. There's mobilization by various supporters of the president in Nkandla. Just minutes before the midnight deadline, Zuma left his home in a convoy of vehicle. Zuma's imprisonment comes after a week of rising tension over his sentence. The most strategic trade route entry was blocked and closed due to the ongoing protests under hashtag shutdown KZN. I can tell you that there is a sense of fear, confusion and uncertainty. It looks like the convoy, yes, it has those presidential coat of arms on the side confirming that Jacob Zuma is one of the inmates that will be sleeping here this morning. In the past days, looting has spread from stores to factories and warehouses, ransacking and rioting in South Africa's worst violence since apartheid. All of the doors are open. There's absolute lawlessness. Protests started with the jailing of Jacob Zuma. His supporters see his treatment as a symbol of the current government's repression. Over the course of eight days in July 2021, South Africa had a nervous breakdown. The good news is that we joined the very short list of countries to send a corrupt former president to jail, even if his term was cut short by an innovation South Africa has perfected, medical parole. The bad news is that no one seemed to anticipate the blowback. In the wake of Zuma's jailing, 354 people died in the looting and destruction, and $3.5 billion, or 50 billion rand, was lost from the economy. When those eight days were over, chunks of the country lay in ruins. Visitors to South Africa, many of whom haven't checked in since Nelson Mandela became president in 1994, now ask, how did the country get from this? Out of the experience of an extraordinary human disaster that lasted too long, must be born a society of which all humanity will be proud. To this. You remember what happened in Tunisia when that Arab Spring started? It was a little spark. One of these days is going to happen to us. One day it's going to explode. That was a comment by Thabo Mbeki, Mandela's successor, made earlier this year. And we have news for him. South Africa is exploding. I'm Richard Poplack, and I'm reporting the story with my colleague, Diana Neal. We are investigative journalists and filmmakers who spend our days reading, writing about, and investigating corporate and political corruption. In other words, we're democracy's proctologists, and like most people in our profession, we work without gloves. We started reporting together in 2015 on a story about labor malpractice at Coca-Cola. Then we made a film about the world's most toxic public relations company, Bell Pottinger. Back in those halcyon days, we thought we could at least see corruption's contours, where it began and where it ended. Seven years later, and it feels like we're drowning in an ocean of toxic sludge. Across the so-called free world, politics now belongs to a cabal of lurching savages. From the floor of the United States Congress to the presidential palaces of Southeast Asia, corruption is such a common feature of global politics today that it's become predictable, entrenched. Our systems don't just condone that corruption, they seem to create it, manufacture it on an industrial scale. And the outcome is almost always telegenic mayhem. We're going to walk down to the Capitol 
You'll never take back our country with weakness. The government did this to us. We were normal, good, law-abiding citizens. What's happening in Sri Lanka is much more than an economic crisis. Discontent is boiling over in Colombia. At least 24 people are dead. The city of light dissolved into a battleground. Hundreds of thousands of farmers marched into Delhi on Tuesday from neighboring states. were held across Paris on Saturday. These violent scenes of unrest all took place over the course of 2021 alone. According to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, there were over 76 major popular uprisings on the planet last year. The American research organization Freedom House reported in 2022 that global freedom has declined for 16 consecutive years as attacks on liberal democracy ramp up. The organization's Freedom in the World report states that the global order is nearing a tipping point, with three out of four people living in a state of democratic breakdown, oppression or outright authoritarianism. In other words, liberal democracy is having a bad century. In the brutal hangover following its own brief moment of electoral ecstasy in 1994, South Africa has been dismissed as just another developing world backwater, backsliding into the cradle of humankind, a vicious Hobbesian cage match for the last kudu on the high felt. But it's worth reminding ourselves that South Africa is a working example of a liberal democracy, with a progressive constitution governed for the past 28 years by the African National Congress, a century-old organization with a broad ideological range and a long history of democratic engagement. The ANC faces off against a free press and well-financed opposition parties that contest free elections under the watchful eye of a functioning judicial system and a robust civil society. Is that democracy? Well, it depends on who you ask. And anyway... To quote the political analyst Astra Taylor, democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. It comes down to this. If democracy, whatever that word means, can flame out in South Africa, it can flame out anywhere. And it has. And it is. With all this in mind, we decided to go on a road trip through post-meltdown South Africa and see if, in the wreckage, we couldn't pinpoint the causes of our own insanity and in the process, discover clues for why the entire world seems to be losing its collective mind. We chose to focus on three figures who we feel represent the various ways in which democracies can absolutely annihilate themselves. They are Ace Mahashule, Gwede Mantashe, and Zuelim Kize. We've chased their lives and legacies around the bottom of Africa. We call them, and their ilk, the highwaymen. So I guess this is a true crime podcast. It's the story about the murder of a country, and yours might be next. Daily Maverick presents The Highwaymen, a limited podcast series written and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal, and produced with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the foundation's views or opinions. This is episode one. We'll miss it when it's gone. Trouble often begins in the coastal province of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa's ungovernable diva. After all, this is where the July riots kicked off, and so begins the world's most dystopian road trip. Among other things, polluted beaches, sharks full of plastic, apocalyptic truck crashes on decaying roads, the province is the seat of power of our former president, Jacob Zuma, and the syndicates that swirl around him. These various groups are, of course, aware that in the battle for control of the ANC, 
the party will go to its national elective conference at the end of 2022. There, it will pick its leadership in advance of national elections in 2024. And while KZN forms a large part of the political mythology of the ANC and of South Africa more generally, the media hasn't always done a great job of placing it in a wider context. The province is, and has, for the duration of democracy, served as a generator of chaos. Chaos that is both politically and economically fungible. Our first stop is the neighbourhood of Morningside in Durban. Amid dense subtropical foliage and the battle cry of Hardidar versus Seagull, we make our way into a compound surrounded by the high walls and electric fences of middle-class South Africa. We're here to meet two self-described community activists who run a growing private security network. They've kitted out a home office with a small control centre that monitors the city 24 hours a day, a surveillance hub that never stops watching or listening. My name is Mohamed Ismail. I am a member of the Community Police Forum. I would like to think of myself as a community activist also. My name is Zain Susiwala, and uh, all we are is a bunch of guys who came together with common purpose, and that is to keep our areas safe. We formulated something called Itequini Secure, which has now about 28 different subsidiaries. A community police forum is a consultative body made up of members of the community who sit alongside the formalized police. You know, it's a legislative body, and you've got to work within the ambers of the law. Because we all at some point have been disenfranchised and have lost faith in the structures that are out there. We could have either gone of one of two directions. We could have become vigilantes and taken her to the road and, and, and done our own thing. But we didn't want to be that way. Instead of working against the flow of things, we decided to become force multipliers within the structures that are currently there. And we've become the go-to guys in this area. The communities look to us for support, guidance, and then we in turn put our heads together and then we find alternate solutions. When the uprisings of last year exploded, crime intelligence, along with state security agencies, were caught with their pants around their ankles. This was actually quite strange given the levels of paranoia the governing ANC has become known for. Every cadre is terrified of the cadre next door, but clearly not terrified enough. According to the report of the expert panel into the July 2021 civil unrest, there was overwhelming evidence that the authorities had received information showing trouble brewing well ahead of time. Aside from formal intelligence briefings, which repeatedly identified instigators and their possible intentions, there were countless tweets, TikToks and WhatsApps, and even phone calls to high-level officials from the public. The only thing missing was a six-part Netflix series called Your Country's About to be Set on Fire. Susiwala and Ismail, among many others, set up neighborhood barricades and patrols to stop looting in their communities and to ensure that properties and people were kept safe. The fear at the time was absolutely palpable. There's this app that converts your phone into a two-way radio. That Zello channel went from five to 600 users on a daily basis to 20,000 people during the civil unrest. That's within 48 hours. And I, I went on and I said, any able-bodied men, woman, anyone who wants to assist, take to the defenses of your community. We are alone. No one is going to come to our defense right now. Our law enforcement, they are calling upon us for protection. So you need to protect your own. We slept in our cars with our bulletproof vests on. So we were running the barricades. There was no oversight from anybody else. We needed to ensure that all our areas were on lockdown. We saw the coordinated, and I'm using this word, coordinated attack on the macro area. And we saw how the gates were dismantled. These guys came in with long, long guns. They, they reversed the trucks into the entrances of macro. They took all or whatever consumer electronics goods as they loaded them in. And then when they left, the taxis were all lined up 
and the settlement started coming towards us. And at that point, thousands of people marauding, running at breakneck speeds to get in there. There was no stopping those crowds. At some point, they lost control of it. At some point, it became a free-for-all. Every single business in this entire area has been affected somehow. This is just what's outside. How do businesses survive? How do they bounce back? Like a scene out of an unpublishable Cormac McCarthy novel, the very real threat of babies starving to death started to present itself. So after like day three, and all the shops are closed, and there is nothing to be had, basic necessities are now running out. The main thing we needed to do was now to protect the food supplies, whatever we have here, but more importantly, and start bringing in food, aid, medication, bread, milk, basic supplies. So 42 trucks now had to be brought in from Johannesburg to Durban. So it's five o'clock in the morning on the 17th of June. We are currently heading back to Durban. Having we got permission from disaster management to go up to protect this, this convoy to bring it back. And then you start to see the effects of what these trucks did to the communities. We unpacked these trucks and you realize the lines that were running, wrapping around neighborhood blocks. You realize that this incident had an impact on everyone. It's actually painful to mention it. It's still in some ways very much fresh. It's my personal belief that I feel that we're not out of the, the civil unrest. And people are still living in this state of anxiety. And I think much of it is because there's not been an equal reaction from the government, from the powers that be, to ensure that we reach a state of normalcy. A state of normalcy. Well, how's this for normal? This is an excerpt from the report of the expert panel into the July 2021 civil unrest. Quote, The looting, destruction and violence have come and gone, but we found that little has changed in the conditions that led to the unrest leaving the public worried that there might be similar eruptions of large-scale unrest in future. It's not if and whether more unrest and violence will occur, but when it will occur. End quote. This is what ends up happening. A country's own civilians are providing the basic services of the state for themselves and for each other, protecting their neighborhoods, feeding people, providing medicine. From one perspective, Susiwala Ismail and their posse are active and engaged citizens, they're willing to literally take up arms to protect their community in the vacuum created by an underfunctioning government. From another perspective, Etiquini Secure functions as just another sub-Saharan African paramilitary outfit, a nimbiest cosplay club with lots of guns. In this dichotomy, between these two perspectives, lurks what remains of the South African state. It's a phenomenon public intellectual Songhezo Zibi has been studying for a long time, He's the co-founder of the Ravonia Circle, a social democratic think tank that hopes to remedy this mess. If you understand national security to be the ability of a country to robustly look after itself and the interests of its people, that erosion started a long time ago. Our security agencies are in the payroll of criminal elements, organized crime, and so these criminal elements are embedded. They now one and the same with the ANC. So what you have is a gang war. And that gang war, because it is in the political sphere, needs mass support. And that is how you end up with an insurrection. Because let's be honest, the person who was formerly president of South Africa was running a criminal enterprise. So you take the more boss and you put him in jail, what does it say? It says none of the rest of the minions are safe. And anybody who's got anything to fear in terms of criminal charges, 
he's going to be very worried. Sisiwala and Ismail were some of the only people standing between that gang war and their communities. For us, they reveal the mechanics of how South Africa and other failing developed and developing nations have begun to unravel. We've seen this in our reporting time and time again. Those who can afford to pay groups like Etiquini Secure to keep themselves, their families and their properties safe. Those who can't must organize in other ways. Think about it like this. In South Africa, the official unemployment rate is 34.5%, climbing to a staggering 63.9% for 15 to 24-year-olds. That's a figure that would be a death sentence in most middle-income countries. But here, the vast and documented inequality has become encased in concrete, part of the architecture of everyday life. These statistics have become the stuff of economic legend. Now that we are 25 years after the fall of apartheid, we are all uh, puzzled by the fact that inequality uh, not only is still very high in in South Africa, but even in some way uh, has been rising. The French economist Thomas Piketty has written by far the most influential book of economics in decades, called Capital in the 21st Century. Its central premise is how we've entered a new gilded age of extreme inequality, and its first chapter kicks off right here in South Africa, in Marikana, the settlement on the platinum belt where 34 miners were massacred by police in August 2012 during a wildcat strike for better wages. Just out of interest, the current owner of that mine, Neil Froneman, took home a 300 million rand or $18 million compensation package last year alone. The walls and electric fences between rich and poor get higher and the barricades on suburban streets become permanent. Neighborhoods become enclaves, policed by private militias, monitored by the digital eye. As far as Ismail is concerned, this is where freestyle political improvisation starts to take shape. We become the politicians, we become the police, we become everything, because now we need to bring back that racial harmony, we need to bring back social cohesion, we need to look after those aspects. Because if you just take a drive into Overport and that you look at the imbalance of the economy, you'd find people are living in dire poverty, and then you get people who are super wealthy. So your imbalance is right in front of you. And that's left up to us. Go back in, in South Africa's political history, fighting together as a single community for the freedom of this country, for your rights, your right to education, your right to healthcare, your right to everything else. And then the euphoria came about, 1994 elections, 27 April. We attained our freedom. But what freedom did you attain when you're sitting in a situation like this that is politically volatile? To find the answer to this question, we need to go back in time, to the beginning. If Susiwala and Ismail are the present tense, the point at which democracy in the second decade of the 21st century has landed us, what got us here in the first place? How do we make sense of the journey we've taken as a country as complex as this one is? As we've said, we believe that South Africa is emblematic of the global rise and stumble of liberal democracy in its various incarnations. And in our work studying democratic flameouts, we've come up with a seven-point breakdown to diagnose this progression. In the South African context, because of the specifics of our history, this seven-point breakdown has happened within and around the ANC, which has by and large been the only game in town politics-wise. It goes like this. Ideological contestation leads to divisions, which result in factions, which create corruption, or rather elite capture, which leads to state capture, which atomizes into organized crime, which results in all-out gang warfare. 
In order to illustrate these points, we want to start with one of the dons of KZN, one of the men who has helped mold this province into a cabal of weaponized zombies, chowing the last remaining state resources to buy ugly cars and badly built mansions. And we'll begin his story during his brief moment of greatness. Possibly the person sleeping the least during this unprecedented time is Minister of Health, Dr. William Kize. Minister, thanks so much for coming through. Thank you. Good yeah. morning to you. We are expecting that there's still going to be quite an increase in the numbers of cases. <clears throat> As health minister at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Zweli Mkize took South Africa in his capable physician's hands, mopped our fevered brows and rocked us gently into our lockdown slumber. When we woke up, we found out that he had stolen 150 million rand. Story this evening, of course, the health minister is on special leave. The presidency says this is to allow the minister to attend to the allegations regarding the contracts between the health department and service provider Digital Vibes. From COVID hero to COVID zero in a matter of weeks. That's what most South Africans know about him, Kize. In June 2021, a company called Digital Vibes, which sounds like a Kyrgyzstan dating site from the late 1990s, was embroiled in a 150 million rand pandemic fund scam. After comprehensive sleuthing by Daily Maverick journalist Peter Louis Myberg, evidence emerged that Nkiza, his cronies and his family ran digital vibes as a personal cash machine. This meant that the good doctor was implicated in a pandemic of thievery, which, it turns out, was happening in democracies everywhere. Long COVID's list of symptoms should include the significant costs imposed by white-collar pandemic corruption. In other words, Nkiza found himself in good company. Before the Digital Vibes scandal, he enjoyed a long career as a member of the country's ruling elite. He's a former peace broker, a former premier, a former presidential hopeful, and a man around whom myriad accusations circulate. Indeed, Mkhize is campaigning to become president of the ANC once again, at its 55th electoral conference in December 2022, even as law enforcement agencies close in on him, and he is one of the creators of the modern KZN Imaginarium. Susiwala and Ismail live in the Mkize multiverse, where, of the 418 political hits recorded nationwide between 2000 and 2021, 118 took place right here in KZN. Notorious for hitmen that'll pull the trigger for a price. Kwazulu Natal has seen at least 27 Izindona assassinated. Is dealing with political killings in KwaZulu Natal has 32 more cases. According to data collected by the Global Initiative on Transnational Organized Crime, there's an increase in the number of assassinations. The brutality is strongly reminiscent of the political violence of the 1980s and the 90s when deep-seated political rivalries saw a battle for supremacy. Remember we outlined the seven-point progression of how political institutions tend to devolve over time? KZN and South Africa at large are much easier to understand when placed in the context of our second point on that continuum, how ideological contestation gives way to divisions, which in turn calcify into factions and the rent-seeking of a kleptocratic elite. Mkhize has played a part in every one of those steps, and his loyalty to the party has never wavered. The resolution to strengthen the structures of the ANC and root out bad elements and bad tendencies is highly supported. We therefore want to say, as the province of Kwasunachal, all the ANC needs to do is to call on us. We shall be there. Well, Susiwala and Ismail would likely dispute that fact. 
The people just needed a voice of reason, and it was not coming from anyone at that point. No board councillor stepped up at that point. No politician came forward. No law enforcement was here. Communities were left on their own. I still don't have full faith that anyone will take our place. And I'm quite happy to relinquish the position that I have right now and hand it over to someone, anyone who is willing to step up and say, if this were to happen again, we will take over and we will prevent any civil unrest from happening again. The reality is we have nothing. That's the terrifying, hard to hear truth. But the reason we're on this journey is to figure out if there are ways to reverse this terrible trajectory. First though, we have to understand it. As we'll soon find out, when the ANC began oxidizing in the fresh air of democracy, the corrosion was almost immediate. As the battle against apartheid became a memory, the new dispensation set the rules for the divisions Susiwala, Ismail and the community are grappling with today. I remember those days as vividly as it was yesterday. We fought for the cause. But what cause are we fighting now? We're fighting against the political party that was supposed to have brought you those freedoms. But they've put you back into chains because of the fragmentation, because of the fracturing. How do we repair that? How indeed. Anyway, we can tell you what Zuelim Kiza is going to do. He's giving it one more go. My name is Zuelim Kiza. My branch has joined numerous other branches in nominating me to contest the position of the ANC president at our upcoming 55th National Conference. So Mkiza is running, and we're about to run after him. All the way through the province, he's helped ruin. The Highwayman is written, produced, and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal, with editing and sound design by Bernard Kutzer and Tevia Turok Shapiro. The original soundtrack is written by Bernard Kutzer. Our project manager is Catherine Kutzer, and our marketing lead is Sarah Quipman. Fact-checking and editorial oversight by Sasha Whale-Smith, with transcriptions provided by Gloria Cooper. Additional voiceover by Ayanda Chali. Our editor-in-chief is Branko Brickich, and our executive producer is Silly Kharlambas. Production of The Highwaymen was made possible with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the foundation's views or opinions. For additional archive and music credits, please visit Daily Maverick. New episodes of The Highwaymen drop weekly on IONO, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to them on the Daily Maverick website. If you found this installment interesting, illuminating, or perhaps even a little life-changing, please consider leaving a review or sharing on social media.